We'll begin this morning with the prelude. It's a special prelude because it's a, a moon drumming song from the North End Winnipeg Women's Center Women's Drumming Group called Moon Drumming, and it's our prelude this morning. I know you're getting settled and visiting and stuff. Namaste. I honor the place in you that is the same in me. I honor the place in you where the whole universe resides. I honor the place in you of love, of light, of peace, and of truth. I honor the place in you that is the same in me. There is but one. Namaste. My name is Reverend Audrey Brooks, and I'm service chaplain here. I welcome you to the Unitarian Church of Edmonton on behalf of our minister, Reverend Brian Colley, and our staff and all of the volunteers that helped make this church be a beloved community. After the service, please join us in the Keeler Hall for lunch, which we'll be sharing with Will and the youth, because they booked it first, actually. We had miscommunication about territory. Anyway, um, if you're new here, introduce yourself to me, and I will tell you everything you want to know because I know everything. What I don't know, I make up. Those who know me will assure you of that. Our social justice working group is dedicated to supporting the calls to action that came from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And part of this, of course, is to educate ourselves and others about what happened to Indigenous families as a result of colonial attitudes which saw them as savages in need of civilization and control. We are called to respect and honor the First Nations who preserved this land and welcomed our ancestors, helped them to survive. The payback they received was to have their human rights and lands taken away from them. And while this church stands on Treaty 6 land, we do not see many First Nations people standing on it with us. Yet we know we are forever interconnected. And that's where this Namaste prayer comes from. We are all one people. Indigenous people all over the world are being eliminated, especially those in the rainforests where the Native people who are living there, 400 people in the last year who are activists, many of them women, have been murdered. History is repeating itself, much like Brian said last week when he pointed out the, uh, the Taoist symbol up there with the, the white with the black and the black with the white. And the spinning of the cycle of history and life, everything repeating and we ask ourselves when we hear these stories, it's overwhelming. Like, what do we do? I mean, we're one or two people, and we're watching uh, world events 
spin out of control. Today, we are going to look at some of those things with the view not to saturate your souls and your minds, but rather to share with you some of the issues that are before us and look at ways that we can, as Canadians and as individuals, even if all we can do is pray in our own way, we're at least doing something. Chief Noah Self said, We know that the earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. This we know. All things are interconnected, like the blood which unites families. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. We did not weave this web of life. We are merely a strand in it. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. Hi, hi. I would like to invite Christine Mowat. Where are you, Christine? Hi, Christine. I would like you to come and light the candle for us this morning because a very special last-minute request for Christine to talk about the missing and murdered women. And she came to do that for us and deal with a very big report in a small period of time. Please come and light the chalice. And please, everyone, in your order of service, let's read this together. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to live together in peace, to help one another, and to seek equality for all people. And we have young people who light candles this morning. Please come forward and light this place up. Light this place on fire with your energy. Energy, energy, smile, smile. There were over 2,000 people, young people, at the legislature Friday. It was amazing, absolutely talking about climate change and all kinds of things. How many of you saw it on the news? (laughs) We were there. I know some of us were there, but otherwise, yes. Okay. Greta Thunberg is some piece of work, I'll tell you. Okay, we're going to sing song number 118, the first verse. And Gordon's going to lead us in that. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And now to get down to business of sharing our abundance. Uh, Many people give uh, through uh, deposits and some people give through checks and there are cards in the back of your hymnal if you want a receipt for your donation. Half of the donation today goes to Camp Firefly, a, a youth group that is geared to supporting and encouraging GLBTQ youth, and I have the privilege of uh, volunteering with them for three years, and I'm telling you, it is an amazing program with amazing young people, so many artists, musicians, dancers, and all kinds of wonderful gifts that they have to share, and they're encouraged by the program. I went to my third sweat lodge. Uh, at the last campfire and I'm telling you I got hooked cooked and hooked although I didn't do any of the passing of the pipe and we will sing Spirit of Life as the collection is being taken you have that in your no you don't Um, Gordon's going to play it right? Hi, Gordon. You. He's hidden. 
Thank you. The reason why we're wearing orange shirts today is to honor the children that were taken from their parents through residential schools and the 60s scoop. And my co-worker today, Aaron Straub, is going to share with you the story of the orange shirt. Hi, I'm Erin, and I've never been up here before, so please be gentle. I did have a video, but I'm not very good with tech stuff, so I'm going to read aloud the story in Phyllis's words for the very first part. I went to the mission for one year in 1973-74. I had just turned six years old. I lived with my grandmother on the Dog Creek Reserve. We never had very much money, but somehow my granny managed to buy me a new outfit to go to the mission school. I remember going to Robinson's store, picking out a shiny orange shirt. It had a string lace up front and was so bright and exciting, just like I felt to be going to school. When I got to the mission, they stripped me and took away my clothes, including the orange shirt. I never wore it again. I didn't understand why they wouldn't give it back to me. It was mine. The color orange has always reminded me of that and how my feelings didn't matter and no one cared how I felt like I was worth nothing. All of us little children were crying and nobody cared. I was 13.8 years old and in grade eight when my son Jeremy was born. Because my grandmother and my mother both attended residential school for 10 years each, I never knew what a parent was supposed to be like. With the help of my aunt, Agnes, Jack, I was able to raise my son and have him know me as a mother. I went to a treatment center for healing when I was 27, and I've been on this healing journey since then. I finally get it, that the feeling of worthlessness and insignificance ingrained in me from my first day at the mission affected the way I lived my life for many years. Even now, when I know nothing could be further from the truth, I still sometimes feel that I don't matter, even with all the work I've done. I'm honored to be able to tell my story so that others may benefit and understand, and maybe other survivors will feel comfortable enough to share their stories. I first heard this story quite a few years ago. When I was in 19, I started social work training. That was 18 years ago. And my community's professor said two things that I will never forget. The first was that he was part of the 60s scoop and that he thought he was doing the right thing he thought that people had told him that he was on the right side of history and that he had helped separate families and that he had been absolutely and totally wrong to participate in that. And the second part was that he wanted to help us learn not to be that kind of helper and that whenever we went into a community or a space that we were not familiar with, it was our ultimate first responsibility to listen do not speak. You think you might have the solutions to problems that aren't really problems. You need to listen and see the people that you are looking at. My grandma also tells me a story because two of my aunts came out of the 60s scoop and they showed up at my grandma's house when they were four and five. And after a year, the social worker showed up and told my grandma that she needed to take the girls away because it was their policy not to leave the children anywhere longer than a year so they did not get attached to the families. My grandma told her to get the F off her property. <laughs> the kids were never leaving, and they would stay there because she told them that they were safe there, and as long as they wanted, they would live there. I don't know how she pulled that off, but they never left. But two people, without the understanding of what was going on around them, had two different reactions. One understood that maybe the authority saying to do the thing wasn't right, and one bought into the authority without quite waiting to see if it was. And I think, especially with what's going on around us all the time still, they're putting children in detention centers right underneath us, is to remember that to stop and listen, and that our stories are all connected, if we're going to enter a community and we want to make every child matter, then we have to constantly be vigilant and constantly check the way we're helping. That's all I want to say. Thanks. At the meeting that I was at last week where I met at Perdita, the goal of the First Nations people is to have, by 2030, homes for all of the children that require care with help for the families to recover from stress 
and addictions rather than dumping the kids into foster homes where I personally have known uh, students that I taught when I was teaching at Vic who had been in as many as 13 foster homes because they have maybe mental health problems and trauma, PTSD or whatever, they last six months in a place and then the foster family can't handle them anymore and they get into a loop that they can't get out of and ending up with, uh, as adults, with extreme behavioral and dysfunctional situations that are almost impossible to, to do anything with. It was a very big lesson to hear the people in the talking circle sharing stories much like what Aaron shared this morning. A young child put into a situation that they don't understand and left there. Once again, as I mentioned at the beginning, treated as savages in need of civilizing I've been savage all my life, and I've never been civilized, but nobody put me in a foster home. That might have been an accident. I don't know. to sing hymn number 121 we'll build the land
Thank you. Our speaker this morning is Christine Mowat. Christine's been a member many, many years and is one of those people who has worked with creating plain language and places where plain language is needed. Christine, please come and talk with us this morning. I thought I'd start by quickly explaining actually why Audrey asked me to give this little talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I've been writing a book for four years. It's called Métis Me, and it began as a biography about Muriel Stanley Venn. Is there anyone in here who doesn't know who Muriel Stanley Venn is? You? Oh, oh, <laughs> okay. So Muriel Stanley Venn is the founder and the president of the Institute for the Advancement of Aboriginal Women here in Edmonton. She is also the first Indigenous woman to have a provincial building named after her, the, the um, Muriel Stanley Venn Provincial Centre. She has the Order of Canada. She was one of the first people to stand up and speak for missing and murdered women. Well, she has about 25 other awards for all the work that she has done. And she wanted the book to be called Métis Me, and she wanted it first to be an autobiography, but she has been so busy, and she has been ill in various ways too. So the book has evolved into something different, although the first part of the book is a biography. The second part of the book is a way of giving a context for her life. And so I have written initially about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about the 60s scoop and about missing and murdered women. And then I spent a great deal of time collecting over four years positive initiatives that have occurred since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and current negative realities about Indigenous lives in our country. The history classes that I took in my youth were colonial histories and excluded any attention to indigenous history. We must admit that creating a false history to rationalize domineering colonialist behavior has been a strategy used many times over many years in our country. Part two continues with the chapters on the current negative realities and the positive initiatives. So our book has three audiences. It has university students in Indigenous studies and women's studies. It has the Canadian public, and it has organizations like UCE who want to learn more about Indigenous people and their history. So I'm going to talk about the purposes of the missing and murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, how it started, its purposes, some of the conclusions, and a few of the calls to justice. And although Audrey said I'm going to speak in plain language, and I hope you understand that plain language can be quite complex, I'm at that level with this, so I'll, I'll do the best I can here to speak clearly. But I'm going to have to read an awful lot of this because I've created this at the last moment. The inquiry was a response to calls for action from indigenous groups as well as non-governmental and international organizations and it was launched in 2016. The inquiry's mandate was first to report on the systemic causes of all forms of violence against indigenous women and girls and to SLGBTQ individuals in Canada and to get to the root causes of why such a disproportionate number of Indigenous women in Canada meet violent ends. And last, they were asked to write both an interim report and a final report with their recommendations. And a little bit like the Truth and Reconciliation Report, they didn't like the word recommendations, and they've called them calls to justice. 
but there's a very important reason why they're using the word justice, and that is because our charter, our constitution, and other international documents have all called for all of the changes that they are talking about. Here are a few newspaper headlines after the interim MMIWG report. Alberta, this is June 8, 2017. Alberta has highest provincial Aboriginal female homicide rate. This article was based on an interview with Muriel. She said the report is coming at a very significant time in the cause that we fought for for the last 40 years, trying to get things changed in the justice system. The women are fighting back, she added, and they're not going to take this discrimination any longer. In August 2017, here's a headline from the Edmonton Journal, although most of my uh, headlines and my summaries are from the Globe and Mail. Edmonton Police Service has reopened files on 11 murdered Indigenous women. So all unsolved historical murders of Aboriginal women in Edmonton are under review as the police search for fresh clues. The victims date back to the 1970s. Now, Audrey wanted me to give some positive initiatives. And perhaps the most remarkable positive results in this period, over the last four years, resulted from a 20-month newspaper investigation into how the police in Canada handle sexual assault allegations. On May 3, 2017, a double-page spread in the Globe and Mail illustrated their results from their, what was it, 20-month investigation. And it was headlined, From Unfounded to Unprecedented, a Timeline of Positive Change. Well, that was only a few weeks after the first article was put out on their investigation. Here's the start. Headline, unfounded. Investigators gathered data from 873 Canadian police jurisdictions. The sobering reality is that one out of every five cases of sexual assault is dismissed as unfounded. The designation unfounded means investigators don't think a crime occurred. The findings expose deep flaws in every step of the process. And Muriel has has told me stories about a number of women who she knows who have been sexually assaulted and they go into the police and the police say, ah, you've just been drunk. You don't have any evidence. Go home. And they don't get the support that they need. And that is unfounded. And then they just put it away and they don't do anything about it. Okay, here's the next one. Three days after the unfounded investigation was reported on. And remember, it was one out of every five cases is dismissed as unfounded. Three days after, police united to reform sexual assault probes. RCMP take action. Police services will review dismissed cases. Trudeau says the investigation will prompt federal government action. And then the next day, four days after, the public safety minister calls for review of sexual assault. And the Ontario Provincial Police, Canada's largest police service, is to re-examine cases spurred by the action because their founding rate... This is the largest police one, was 34%. That's one in every three cases, even though the average is one in five across Canada. Next one, six days later, unfounded, over 10,000 sexual assault cases to be reviewed. 32 police forces serving more than 1,000 communities have launched investigations into more than 10,000 recent sexual assault complaints in the light of the Globe investigation. 
the investigation had taken 20 months, and it received 250 individual Freedom of Information responses. Obviously, the reactions were immediate. Before examples of calls to justice from the final report of the National Inquiry into the MMIWG release just four months ago, let's get to the Chief Commissioner's preface, Marion Bullen's opening preface in the main report. And this all has to do with the word genocide. I'm sure you've heard and read about this. The truth is that we live in a country whose laws and institutions perpetuate violations of basic human and indigenous rights. Nothing less than the deliberate, often covert, campaign of genocide against indigenous women, girls, and two SL, two spirits, LGBTQQIA people. Now that's right at the beginning where she says... Canada is guilty of genocide. She said, further, as my mandate comes to an end, I note with great humility that this national inquiry will have honored the struggles taken up by the families and survivors over the past 40 years. This inquiry sought by 3,000 families will have shone light on facts that are all too often hidden. So here are some of the findings. Uh, Right to justice. The Canadian criminal justice system fails to provide justice for Indigenous people, especially Indigenous women, girls, and I'm going to say and related people instead of all of the um, letters. The failure of the Canadian justice system to protect them is well established and documented The lack of effective response by the federal government in particular to remedy this failure prevents the fundamental paradigm shift that is imperative to end the genocide. And it's important to do an analysis of the word genocide because the papers immediately came out with criticisms. And that's because the word genocide is seen as such a severe word to use that so many problems in our world that are examples of genocide And some are still happening. Venezuela, I read about just on the weekend, and it sounds like genocide, what they're doing there. In any case, the inquiry discusses the term genocide and created a comprehensive 46-page supplementary report, which is a legal analysis of the word genocide. Here is a section on it from Volume 1A. In our world... Genocide is absolutely the worst thing you can say about an action undertaken by individuals or groups. So atrocious, in fact, that many historic events that carry the characteristics of genocide struggle to or fail to get named as such. If you speak to indigenous women today, they will tell you the crisis is far from over. The Indian Act still discriminates against Indigenous women. Indigenous women suffer far greater rates of heart disease and stroke. They have higher suicide rates. They disproportionately live in poverty as single parents. Their over-incarceration rates have increased. And get this, in the last 10 years, they've increased by 90%. 90% more Indigenous people are imprisoned since 10 years ago. 48% of all children in foster care in Canada are Indigenous. And then she writes, is it any wonder that thousands of our sisters are missing or murdered? And many of us didn't know this. In 1948, The United Nations adopted the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Article 2 of that convention holds that genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as, and there are five definitions here, 
and they all apply to what's happening to indigenous women. Killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Boy, we've been at that for a long time. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Sterilization of Indigenous women without their approval. And forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And Canada signed that convention in 1948, 1949, and ratified it in 52. Further statistics from the report. Indigenous women have higher rates and more severe forms of physical assault and robbery than other groups in Canada. Indigenous women are sexually assaulted three times more than non-Indigenous women. An RCMP report also stated that Indigenous women made up roughly 16% of all female homicides between 1980 and 2012 despite making up only 4% of the female population. These statistics continue, and they're heartbreaking to understand and to listen to, but the truth is coming out. Here are several calls for justice. Um, For all governments... Um, provincial and federal and territorial and the governments of indigenous people to address the violence against indigenous women and girls and related people to immediately take all necessary measures to prevent, investigate, punish and compensate for the violence to establish a national indigenous and human rights ombudsperson and to establish a National Indigenous and Human Rights Tribunal, to recognize Indigenous languages as official languages, like English and French. There are also calls for justice for all governments related to health and wellness, and that focuses on giving equitable treatment to Indigenous women and girls and related people to human security, to support the establishing and sustainable funding of transition homes, second-stage housing, services for Indigenous women and girls and related people who are homeless, near homeless, dealing with food insecurity or in poverty, and who are fleeing violence or have been subjected to sexualized violence and exploitation. These recommendations, which we frame as calls for justice, are legal imperatives. They are not optional. The calls for justice arise from international and domestic human and indigenous rights laws, as I mentioned at the beginning, including the Charter, the Constitution, and the Honor of the Crown. That's the most important part. That's the most important underlying principle of the report. Thank you. More information than many of us can take in all at once, but very powerful. Thank you so much, Christine, for putting that together for us.
This drum was given to me by Becky Hoganson, who was in my life from the ages of 15 to the age of 39 when she died. Dosha Lisney took her under her wing and taught her how to do mudding and prepare a wallboard for paint. She was also a GLBTQ. She went to Chicago for her surgery and unfortunately didn't make it through. So I use this today to honor her memory. She was a part of my extended family. She sat outside my room at Vic, and she sort of hung out, and I went to the uh, Doug Frise, who was a counselor there, and I asked him, what, what's with this kid? And he said that she had been taken into Youth Development Center to keep her safe because she had been uh, abused on the reserved by people who would come to her family home to drink. And she herself told me that by the time a girl reaches puberty, that she is generally raped. Then she said she used to hide underneath the, the house. So this was her drum. The 
meditation in your order of service. Could we read that together, please? This will be followed by the song that's attached to your order of service called Song of Sorrow and Healing. Meditation in words. We know that neither the earth or its people can be exploited. All of us are connected across race and culture. If we destroy these through greed and hate, we also destroy ourselves. Let's have some silence and please turn the lights down. I asked Gordon to play the song through once, and then we'll sing it through twice. song was written by Carolyn McDade, many of you who know her music, A Spirit of Life, of one of her songs, and come sing a song with me. Closing words. Go now in peace. May we be energized and committed to speaking out against inequality. And may the sun shine on all the small things we can do to make a difference in our little corner of the world. Let us sing Carry the Flame 